Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. It's good to be back. I hope everybody did have a good and happy new year and a good holiday. We've got lots of work to do in the year 2019. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, January 3rd, 2019. I think that might be the first time I said 2019 out loud. Tonight, we again talk about what to look for and where the banks cannot hide. Tonight, Russell Baldwin joins me to discuss some theories that might have some traction off the usual track of foreclosure defense. In a few moments, we'll be discussing recoupment, assumption of risk, and the continuing discoveries by Bill Padalo about conflicts and inconsistencies in the documents used to claim rights for collection, servicing, and foreclosure. And, of course, the illustrious Charles Marshall will be here to give us his insights as well. Bill uh, Padalo and Charles Marshall join the conversation uh, tonight to offer their insights while the our main guest is Russell Baldwin from Oregon. Just to set up this discussion, I think there are two realities that have not really been adequately litigated. I mean, they've been discussed in the literature and on the Internet and so forth, but I'm not sure they've actually been adequately litigated. One is the fact that the documents that the bank servicers, lawyers, really the lawyers are using, they're purporting to represent a bank as trustee or whoever, but in reality, the... uh, identity of their client is not so easy to determine uh, when you consider that the so-called client is getting instructions from yet another party who in turn might be getting instructions from yet another party. So who who the client really is, is up for some discovery and discussion. So the first thing is the fact that the documents they're, they're using are not just fabrications, forgeries, or robo-signed. The documents generally have one or more of four attributes. Now, when I think about it, I might come up with a fifth, and you might too. Virtually every document they offer and that we have seen 
over a span of 12 years for myself, does one of the following, one or more of the following things. It refers to another document without specifically identifying the document, like where it says that, you know, uh, Bank of America signs as attorney in fact for LaSalle Bank or something like that. Well, attorney in fact means that there's a power of attorney, but it doesn't say pursuant to the power of attorney executed on the third day of January 2019 uh, by and between uh, uh, the owner of the debt and uh, or the the, the party who supposedly they are the attorney in fact for, and Bank of America. In fact, what we found is no such document exists. They usually fabricate it. And we've seen often enough uh, uh, in the rush to fabricate the power of attorney, they often put the wrong grantor on. So I had a trial, for example, where the case was between U.S. Bank and my client, and the power of attorney was from was supposedly from case who had absolutely nothing to do with the case. Needless to say, that's one of the cases that I won, uh, <laughs> along with uh, uh, Patrick Junta. Uh, uh, the second thing is that there are other documents that are not referred to but that exist and conflict with the document that they are proffering, where, for example, one says the trustee or servicer has the power to do something and the other uh, quite explicitly limits or eliminates those powers of the trustee or servicer. The third is the omit attachment of relevant documentation legally required to make the principal document facially valid. So, for example, going back to the attorney and fact thing, what would every bank require if it was putting out its money and going at risk? They'd, they'd require, A, attachment of the power of attorney, and B, verification from the party who supposedly executed it. You don't get any of that when the banks are moving against an individual and the judges are enticed into making assumptions or presumptions as though that existed, that the document exists and that it was valid and authenticated and, uh, and so forth. And the fourth thing, which is very common with securitization documents, uh, is that the document contains internal conflicts that cannot be resolved without looking outside the document. For example, the pooling and servicing agreement, which starts off saying that the servicer has this right, these rights, and the trustee has these rights and obligations and so forth. By the time you get deep into the document and towards the end, all those grants or statements of authority are taken away completely. And, you know, I noticed this, of course, back in 2006 when I read my first pooling and servicing agreement. Um, and so you, you, 
the point of all this is that they're winning because of presumptions that are based upon facially valid instruments. If you can show that the instrument on its own is not facially valid, then they're not entitled to the legal presumption and they have to prove it. And they have to prove everything that's in that document factually. So if the implication is that there was a loan, they have to prove a loan. If the implication is that there was a purchase of, of, of the debt, then they have to prove the purchase. But the way they've been getting around that is through legal presumptions that prevent the homeowner from raising any credible defenses that might apply uh, uh, to a party who, frankly, it's not a matter of they don't have standing. They they have no right to be in the mix. Uh, they have no right, title, or interest to the mortgage, to the debt, to the note, to the mortgage, or anything else. The other reality is that, simply stated, the entire bundle of claims about origination, transfer, pooling, and securitization of loans appears to be part of one large fraudulent scheme, which everybody has a feeling for, but few people can actually describe, uh, a scheme that, besides the obvious, leads to questions about claims in equity like recoupment and assumption of risk. So given the climate of made-as-instructed appraisals back, uh, especially in the, in the mortgage meltdown period, where property was appraised at $900,000 when in actuality that was based upon the asking price of a developer who was raising prices by 10% a month. And, and then immediately afterwards, within months, found that he couldn't sell the property for more than $400,000. So given that climate of, uh, uh, in the industry we call them MAI appraisals, uh, and the people who are somewhat cynical like me call them made as instructed MAI uh, <laughs> uh uh, appraisal supporting loans based on prices that were stratospherically higher than values. My constant thought has been that since the Truth in Lending Act puts the burden of viability of the loan on the lender, not the borrower, the burden of viability means the ability to repay and all that, and the uh, so-called lender or so-called successor assumed the risk of failure then having entered into a pattern of conduct in which it knew it was lending money based upon a value that was false. In equity, that means that the court has a right to split up the obligation such that both sides pay for the error in proportion to their various errors or culpability in entering into a transaction that was clearly against public policy uh, in this case and, and violative of, uh, of, of many specific laws. 
Those of you who have followed me since I first appeared on this scene 12 years ago know that I have consistently advocated for a receivership approach in which all parties to these transactions, up and down the line from the investor down to the homeowner, share in the losses created and that the gains that were grabbed by the banks as intermediaries without disclosures to their customers, that is, the investors, uh, uh, and what were worthless certificates uh, and were not even printed on paper, that those gains also be thrown into the pot. So there would be some clawbacks from the banks under my scenario. That's not a law. That's, that's my personal opinion. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. So do a little multitasking if you're near your computer and go to the donate button on the home page of the blog, livinglies.wordpress.com, or call 954-451-1230 or 202-838-6345, and leave a message, and we'll get back to you to get to uh, your donation of one time or monthly or whatever suits you. If this show has value for you, if I work on the blog and our radio shows without payment or compensation of any kind, directly or indirectly, if that has value to you, then chip in. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So that brings us to our panelists today and show contributors, Bill Padalo and Charles Marshall. Welcome. Hi. Happy New Year. <laughs> yes, Happy New Year. And, happy New Year, Neil. And, our, and, uh, and Russell yes. as well. And here's to uh, all of our efforts in 2019. Yes, sir. Uh, our special guest tonight, Russell Baldwin, who is an experienced litigator in in Oregon, the, the state of Oregon, and is one of those lawyers that isn't afraid to try new things to achieve a favorable result for his clients. Uh, his comment regarding something I said about assumption of risk was what piqued my attention. Welcome, Russell Baldwin. Thank you very much for having me and the fine compliment. I appreciate it. You're, you're very welcome. So I gather from what I've seen of your work that you are an experienced litigator and uh, uh, you, you made some references, which I want you to get into, about assumption of risk and, and recoupment. But I wanted to ask you first about what got you into foreclosure defense? Uh, sure. Well, about 10 years ago, during the, what's been described as the veritable tsunami of foreclosures, I had several clients that were complaining to me about being victimized by Bank of America, Countrywide, and others. So I kind of uh, tiptoed into the fray, and here I am 10 years later still doing it. Well, it's good to, ha to have you... As, as part of the national team of, of lawyers, independent lawyers who were doing this, there's a great many 
lawyers that refuse to take these cases because of a variety of, of reasons. Um, uh, I think the most important of which is that they don't believe that they can win any of these cases. What do you say to them? Well, I would agree. Uh, it's been it's been my experience that um, so many of the state courts and the federal courts that I've appeared in front of uh, are um, foreclosure cases are unpopular, um, uh, and it's kind of been my impression that most judges just want these to go away. You know, some oftentimes I'll be I'll hear something like, "Well, you know, you didn't pay for the house, so." get out. Um, and, uh, uh, I just both here in Oregon at the state and federal level, I've kind of seen that, that it's the judicial environment is very, very slow to respond and very slow to docket hearings. And, um, uh, I always feel uh, lucky when I actually get a hearing. Right. Yeah, well, that's the experience of of, of, of many lawyers, and uh, uh, I have to say that while I have great confidence in the strategies that I promote, uh, uh, using me, in fact, take the case that I mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. the day before, using the same strategies that I used in the case that I won, uh, we lost. And it was affirmed on appeal, even though it was painfully obvious that nothing they were saying was was true. The judge would hear none of it. So I understand the, uh, the thought. So you uh, uh, made some mention of recoupment as a potential strategy and that you've had some experience Experience using, or one at least one experience in using assumption of risk. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Um, recoupment is uh, it's technically an affirmative defense rather than a strategy per se. It's um, and it's easiest to distinguish um, from something like set off in that recoupment is strictly not a claim and. Because recoupment is not an affirmative claim for relief, you can plead recoupment past the applicable statute of limitations, period. Okay? So the thing for your listeners to kind of remember, uh, first, uh, this, is, this is highly technical, so if you don't have a lawyer, the first thing you need to do is get a lawyer if you know you, you're, you know you're going to find yourself in court get a lawyer and talk to your lawyer about recoupment. The thing is, is that recoupment, because it's entirely defensive, at least in Oregon, you can plead this affirmative defense, even though the, the, the claim on which your recoupment claim, claim may be based, your, your recoupment defense may be based, even though it's past the statute of limitations. So let me give you an example. Uh, let's say that we have a homeowner that's being sued for failure to pay a $100,000 note. Um, but that same homeowner has meritful claims of perhaps $200,000 in other damages for fraud or negligence or uh, uh, 
assumption of the risk, like you mentioned, in the context of a receivership. So in this case, the homeowner could allege as an affirmative defense recoupment to that $100,000 bank claim, but no more, okay? If you claim more than what the bank is suing you for, that's an affirmative claim, and you're going to get hit. If you're past the statute of limitations, you're gonna, that, that's going to get dismissed. So the, 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 the thing to do with recoupment is allege it as an affirmative defense for the amount that you claim up to the amount that you're being sued for. Interesting. Interesting. I, th- I think that's a, that's a strategy that has merit, and I know the courts have uh, struggled with, with some of these uh, concepts in terms of avoiding the statute of limitations that a, a claim that is otherwise barred by the statute of limitations is not barred uh, as a defensive position. Um, and uh, recoupment takes it one step further which enables, uh, I guess, a form of set-off against the claim, if proven. uh, Exactly. uh, It's it's much like set-off, except at least here in Oregon, we've got a long line of cases that distinguish recoupment from set-off. Here in Oregon you can plead set off as a counterclaim, but to do that, you're going to have to be within the statute of limitations. So when the Oregon Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals here in Oregon has, has explained what recoupment means, it compares it to, to set off and says, recoupment is entirely defensive and therefore it can be pled as an affirmative defense outside the applicable statute of limitations. So the moral of that story is that for everybody outside of the state of Oregon, you must do your legal research in the state in which the property is located in order to determine whether recoupment is treated differently than than set off uh, or, or a counterclaim. So, exactly. Okay. All right, so before we run out of time here, uh, talk to me about what your experience was with assumption of risk. Uh, uh, I've not yet gotten a hearing on the the few cases where I've pled assumption of the risk. Uh, We're still waiting, and kind kind of my tactic is to keep the homeowner in the game, um, uh, you know, we, we keep the, our powder dry, if you will, and when the bank starts papering us, we paper back, but we, we play it entirely defensive. So what, what I look for in clients are homeowners who are willing to just stay in the game, right? Um, don't give up, right. just stay in the game and play it out. And there's nothing to be gained. My belief is there's nothing to be gained by rushing if you are a debtor in possession. Just live your life and enjoy your home. Right. 
So um, what's your view on assumption of risk in terms of its viability as a defensive claim? Um, it's uh, to be quite honest, it was kind of hard for me to conceptualize um, where assumption of the risk would kind of, would fit in in a typical case. I really like Neil what you said at the in the opening um, about uh, assumption of the risk in the context of a receivership. I think that's brilliant, um, and it it really um, <laughs> it. What's so nice about that is it, 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 it serves the equities of everyone and plays into this larger idea that we all share that courts dispense justice. Right. Charles, you have a comment on this? I could see possibly using uh, an assumption of risk strategy in California cases I, I like actually uh, the potential of recoupment. I think as a practical matter, it would be limited to the very limited number of judicial foreclosure cases. I mean, Russell, is that where you, you see this used only in judicial foreclosure cases where your client's on the defense side, or do you sometimes sometimes get this into plaintiff's cases with, Oregon's non-judicial foreclosure architecture. Yeah, usually it's going to be judicial foreclosure. Um, if uh, for non-judicial foreclosure, of course, you wouldn't be in court unless uh, you're challenging the non-judicial foreclosure by way of declaratory judgment. And that's I've done that. It's somewhat unusual. Um, generally, I mean, the way that I conceptualize recoupment is pleading in a in a current case of uh, before a court of general jurisdiction, at least in Oregon. Right. And following your logic, it really wouldn't be available as a proactive pled cause of action uh, on the side of the bar we're acting as the plaintiff. Um, it's just going to be available as an affirmative defense when the bar was on the defense side. And of course that would be the case in judicial foreclosure I do see more potential for the assumption of risk uh, in, a, in a California context. I, I think in a future show, uh, we would have more time to address that. Yeah, well, there's only so much time that we, that we do have, and we only have two minutes left in this show to talk. The, uh, I, after listening, Russell, to you, uh, I think recoupment is definitely something that I'm going to take a very close look at because there's still 20-some-odd states that are judicial foreclosure states. Uh, and I agree with Charles that it would be hard to plead something as recoupment in a lawsuit you are bringing um, because that clearly would not be a defense. It would be a claim. On the other hand, you might argue against that by saying, well, the fact that we're in non-judicial foreclosure should not mean that defenses that would otherwise be available are eliminated. So there's a there's a whole issue there that I think needs to be rounded out. On assumption of risk, um, um, I, I think 
you know, uh, I think there's a, a, a wide variety of potential issues that could be brought if uh, if assumption of risk was pled properly and litigated properly. For example, if you have a, a teaser loan that you know is going to reset, say, in three years, and that the reset payment is higher than the entire household income, which applies to many loans that I've seen, <clears throat> then <clears throat> there is not only an assumption of risk, but a prescription of risk that the bank or whoever the so-called lender was imposed on the borrower. And once again, we find ourselves out of time. I thank you, gentlemen, Russell Baldwin and Charles Marshall and Bill Padalo from you. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Yes, thank you, Neil. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.